looked over and uh, I saw Ross. <laughs> you could tell my baby was crying there. <laughs> oh, man. So hopefully he'll calm down. <laughs> He's at that stage, you know, where he doesn't want to be left with anyone but mom or dada, you know. So, But um, before we get into the study tonight, um, I wanted a friend of mine who's serving over in um, Kenya and near Nairobi. Uh, I can never say it right, the town that he's in, but it's outside Nairobi. Um, you've got to run guy, something like that. <laughs> so he's going to share with us about stuff going on there just for a few minutes. And, um, you know, he grew up kind of in the youth group here and uh, went into Pottersfield and then started serving with the church there in uh, the Calvary Chapel there in, in Gatarangai. So why don't we welcome Mike as he comes and shares just what the Lord's doing. Most of the people aren't here tonight because I, just, I also wanted to let you know a lot of people aren't here because of the castle retreat. So, um, you know, that's why it's a little sparse here tonight, but that's okay. Um, it's good to be with you guys. And so, Mike, why don't you come up and share with us for a few minutes? Good evening. Thank you for the introduction. Then yeah, Angata Rangai. So it was pretty good. Very, very close. But yeah, so hello. Uh, my name is Mike. Um, I'm serving in Kenya. I've been there for the past few years-ish, I think. Um, so I kind of just want to give a little update, um, what we've been doing, what's going on, the situation there. Um, so yeah, here it goes. Um, so recently, and I think the last time I shared was a few months ago, um, there's even more people in here now, because I think during that time it was, um, when COVID was a lot here and we were kind of on the break there, but still, um, concerning Kenya, um, just from the past, when I last spoke to now, um, things do seem to be getting progressively a little better. Um, we are still under um, curfews. We still have mask mandates. We still have the social distancing um, mandates and regulations. Um, if you're just outside your home without a mask, um, you can be arrested. It is a $200 fine and six months in jail. Um, so you'll see it if you go into town, you know, it's still very condensed. You know, there's no social distancing whatsoever just because Nairobi, even Angadarangai is a very condensed town, but everybody's wearing a mask and everybody's, you know, the streets are dead after like 8 p.m., which is kind of weird. But... Um, as far as ministry goes, as far as our church and our community, um, we're still going strong. You know, God is still doing a lot of work um, with the school that we have is fully opened. In July, we just finished our 2020 school year. So our kids got a nice one week summer break and then immediately starting the 2021 school year. So, and that's with all schools in Kenya. Um, we didn't hold, 
you know, we held all the students back, so we didn't just let people graduate. They kind of just stopped where they were. So we had to finish up the 2020 school year. We got in. Now we are a couple months within the 2021 year, which should end in, should end actually by um, 2022 in April, I think. So yeah, by 2023, we will be fully back on track. So concerning the school, um, everybody has to wear a mask. Everybody has to social distance, um, but classes are resumed at scheduled. All of our students are in attendance, so everybody's there. We had no known cases at our school so far, so things have been going well. Um, as far as our kids club is concerned, we still have 150 to around 200 kids every week on Saturdays. Um, again, everybody is supposed to wear a mask. We're supposed to social distance. I'll leave it at that. We've had a lot of teenagers, um, as myself and Dan, who's another Kenyan guy, serves with me. Um, we've been pouring into a lot of our teenagers, um, working a lot with them, and they have, we have a small group that have stepped up and have started teaching on their own by themselves the different classes at Kids Club. So we have 14, 15, 16-year-old kids, you know, teaching 20 to 30 kids all on their own, and they're doing an incredible job. Um, I'm incredibly proud to just see kind of what the Lord has done in their lives and how the Spirit has been working through them. Um, it's been a lot of work to get them to this point, um, but it's really incredible just to see how the select few that have continued to serve more and more just at the church, at Kids Club, have, you know, stepped up, whether it's in the classroom teaching whether it's handing out food for lunch or handing out chai to the kids, whether it's cleaning the church afterwards or doing the dishes or helping the moms as they're cooking and as they're cleaning. Um, you can just see the change in them, the change in their lives, you know, just how they are, um, how they communicate with their friends and with us, um, the way they interact, and it's awesome and amazing to see. And it's so cool just the fruit that we get to see now even just after the short period of time of these kids really kind of stepping up and, and taking that responsibility and um, really dedicating themselves and, and their own lives to seek after the Lord and to continue to serve him as they're serving in this community so it's amazing to see um, so I'm just completely blessed to be a part of it, to continue to be there, to continue to disciple with them and to, you know, walk alongside of them as they continue to grow and as they continue to learn. Is, um, what, what they're doing is just incredible. So we're trying to kind of dive more into their own lives, um, get to know them a little more personally, not just as they serve at the church, um, but as we continue to serve with them, myself and Dan kind of have a heart to see 
um, even their home lives as well, because um, Kenya is nothing like here. Um, so the home life is very just dynamically different. Um, there's a lot of absent fathers. There's a lot of alcohol in the homes, and it's difficult. You know, so we want to do whatever you know we can do to come alongside these children, come alongside our teenagers. Um, one, just to let them know that, you know, we're there for them, that the Lord is there for them, um, and to really just be a part of their lives. Um, one of the main things we've been trying to do is also get our teenagers into school. And the issue with, you know, the whole school thing there is because mainly school fees, um, everything has to be paid up front. If you don't have the upfront things, you don't go to school. In Kenya, if you don't go to school, if you don't even finish high school, you do not succeed. You know, there's no ifs or maybes, you, you don't. You do not succeed. So we've been doing our best to, you know, push them, one, into attending school, two, into studying for school, um, to keep reading, studying, um, be on top of their homework. So it's not always easy because they never want to do it, but we've been able to kind of console them, have after-study time at their church every um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, one, to just push them to further their education, um, and also just kind of praying and seeing kind of where the Lord works. Um, and that the Lord can provide for these kids and for these teenagers to actually attend school because school fees can be an issue. But we've seen God do it before, um, and he still continues to do it, so it's really awesome to see just his faithfulness in this as um, these kids are, you know, with us, serving with us, and getting an education. So I didn't want to take up too much time because, you know, I know Matt has a lot to say. Um, so I just want to say thank you very much for allowing me to speak, having me up here. Um, please continue to pray for those in Kenya, for just the ministry that we have there, for the children there, for our teenagers there, um, for those that are in school, for those that are attempting to attend school and just that the Lord continues to provide for them, to watch over them, and that they continue to grow. So thank you very much for the time, and here is Pastor Matt. Thanks for sharing, Mike. Um, yeah, it's good to hear what the Lord's doing in faraway places. I know... Um, you know, Ray sometimes has Mike come up when he when he's around and, and share, and we want to give him those opportunities when possible because, you know, we're a part of the work. Whether we realize it or not, um, you know, the church supports Mike, and uh, we're praying for him and, and hoping the Lord continues to work there uh, with the ministry and pastor and all those that are serving there. So it's exciting. And Lord willing, maybe sometime we'll go and visit Mike, take a team there and visit him. So 
Uh, pray for us as well that God would just guide that and direct it. Because a lot of times it starts connections and starts new things when we go on trips like that. So we'll see what the Lord does. Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, you know, sometimes you've got to share things that are, um, you know, what the Lord is ministering in your own heart, right? And these are some of the things I've been thinking about. Uh, personally, I think it's relevant um, to us in these times we live. Uh, and I think, you know, we're reminded when we read through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we're reminded just how great, perfect, awesome, amazing Jesus is, that the standard is so high. And yet that standard being so high, he doesn't, you know, demand this of us without the power to do it, right? So he gives us the power to do it by the, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that he gives us to live the life that he's called us to live. So I want to make sure you understand that. I, I, I realize that we're, we don't always live up to these standards. I mean, there's so many aspects of the Servant on the Mount that we're, we're just, we fall short. And, you know, as the scriptures say, though, as we behold Jesus, as we see who he is, his glory, we're transformed to his likeness by the Holy Spirit from glory to glory. So it's a progressive thing, meaning it's something that doesn't end. Paul, even himself, who walked with the Lord for many, many years, even towards the end of his life, said, you know, I've basically, I've not arrived. I'm not there. I'm pressing forward, you know, for the high calling in Christ Jesus. And so in chapter 5 of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verse 43, we'll read verse 43, and we're going to, this will be a pretty simple study. We'll just do kind of a verse by verse and look at these verses from 43, actually, I'm sorry, 38 to 48. Um, and we'll look through these, comment on them, look at them, think about them, and then we'll look at an example and kind of close it up with that. So Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And, you know, so a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus, again, setting forth this high standard of what he is like, what God is like. You know, the law did set a standard. The law definitely showed, um, you know, as they obeyed the law, it created a differentiator, created a way to contrast uh, the nation of Israel with the nations all around them who were incredibly wicked in their ways. Um, and so when you read the law, oftentimes many of the laws that you read excuse me, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, especially those, and a little bit to a lesser extent in Numbers, so many of the laws that are put forth are in direct contrast to the nations around them, what food they ate, how they were supposed to clean themselves, the way that they were supposed to uh, interact with their family, the sexual relations that they were to have, um, 
the way that they were to treat their neighbors, it was all a direct contrast to the wickedness of the nations around them. And God already had foreseen that the nations around Israel would eventually be judged. He gave them time. And I think that's important to know because we're going to see that. And, and even in this chapter here, how God even allows the rain and the sun to shine on the wicked, right? The rain to come down to bless them with crops on the wicked. So God is incredibly long-suffering. And I think oftentimes the Old Testament God is looked at as a completely different entity than the God of the Bible, right? The God of the New Testament and even Jesus. But what we see when you look at it with consistency and with, with diligence, we, you see an act, actually a consistency that, with God in the way that he was. But he is just and he is righteous and those things cannot go on forever, right? He cannot allow those things to go on forever. Otherwise, we would all be our own gods and Satan would essentially reign in this world, uh, you know, over, over mankind. So he says here, you know, that, you sh um, that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So this, this is the idea that they took and took it further. So this was intended originally. It was actually, it's actually from Exodus 21, verse 24. It was to be applied to judges or magistrates, those who had to make decisions according to the law. That it was, you know, many of you are familiar with the balances you see in the justice system. If you've ever been to the court, a balance is a symbol in the justice system of our country of justice, of equal uh, giving out of the law and due course, due process, and doing it in a way that is fair, that's right. Um, and in the case of this particular verse that, they, that Jesus is quoting, it's in the giving out of a punishment, right, in a, um, in a trial sort of respect. But the leaders of that time and the commentators and the Jewish leaders and the, and the, the lawyers of that time took it further to mean basically personal revenge, right? So if someone gets me with some, you know, does something to me that I don't like, that in turn I turn around and I get them back. So I'm going to get them back equally. And it creates this kind of tit-for-tat, you know, get-even type mentality. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the, the, that's not the reason for that verse. That, the reason there is so that, you know, on both sides, that there's a, a just and equitable uh, delivery of, of some consequence of the law, right? So they wouldn't go beyond what the law called for, and they wouldn't go too little, right, where, you know, there wasn't sufficient punishment for a crime or a law that was broken. And, you know, whether we agree with the law or not, we need to remember the purpose of the law was there was a moral aspect to the law that it was to show us that there's a greater moral law, but there was also a, a heavy component that was ceremonial, that was rit, uh, you know, a ritual, and that was laws of cleanness and uncleanness, and, and again, to differentiate them from the nations around them. So he says, 
I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And so this idea of getting back, Jesus kind of flips it and says, no, you know, <laughs> instead give them, you know, not only the, you know, the left cheek, if they slapped you on the left cheek, give them the right cheek also. And that's just a saying to kind of give them the point. And Jesus actually did this. You know, when he was before Pilate and the high priests and the religious leaders of before he was to be crucified, in, in John chapter 18, verse 22, he said, um, it said, and when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? because of what Jesus had said to the high priest. And he didn't say anything wrong. He just spoke the truth. And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? And he's basically saying, he's calling out, you know, this, this unjust delivery of punishment for speaking out against uh, or speaking to the high priest that it wasn't done justly. And the guy could either bear witness to what, you know, tell me what I did wrong, and then I'll give you my other, you know, basically he's saying, okay, I'll accept it. I'll accept that, that beating if I did something wrong, but if I didn't, why do you smite me, right? I haven't done anything wrong. And they always, they all knew that. They knew that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. That was the thing that they constantly saw with Jesus, that he was always innocent. Judas saw he was innocent. And others saw he was innocent as well, including Pilate. Um, so an attitude of personal vengeance. I think it's, you know, and it starts, you know, when we're young. <laughs> um, you know, when I, I look at my kids, I'm reminded of myself when I was a kid with the tit-for-tat sort of mentality, right? It's always like you got to get them back. And it's unfortunate, but it's almost like it's bound up in us when we're, you know, where it's just part of our nature, right? We need to get revenge. We need to get, it needs to be fair. This isn't fair if I don't get them back. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got to relive your own childhood and the mistakes of your own childhood by watching it in your own kids and trying to correct it in your own kids, right? I think in another case, though, and so we need patience in, as parents, but I think in another case, you know, when it comes to marriage, I think this is, it's easy to fall into this sort of mentality of like, you know, I gotta get back at them, right? Or I gotta say something sharp to them because they said something sharp to me. And I think it's an endless downward spiral towards a good healthy, uh, you know, from a good healthy relationship. And I think we all know when we've done that. And I think we need, again, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to to allow us to be under the light of God's word and to allow us to walk, you know, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with him. So we bring up this weakness before him and then it allows us to be humble before our spouses and to not take that road. And I think we observe it in the world and so many marriages fall into this place of, I got to get even, right? Because they wronged me in some way or they're not living up to my expectations. So I'm purposefully not going to live up to theirs, even though I know this is what they want. So may the Lord help us in that just to, to not fall into that same, um, 
cycle and downward spiral, but that we would take the higher road by the power of the Holy Spirit and to show us, Lord, show us our weaknesses, uh, that we might live a, a life to love our spouses and, and to, um, to respect them for, for, you know, what they need and what they would expect from us. So he goes on here and he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take, you all, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And the tunic was the inner garment and the cloak, obviously the outer garment, the more expensive garment and the one you would only have, generally speaking, one of. Um, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And often the Romans would compel people into service, especially from other nations. They would invade a nation. They would see a need that they needed to carry out. And, you know, relative size-wise, the Roman army was always smaller than the opposing armies. They were just really well-trained and could fight well. Um, and so oftentimes there was much to do in conquering, right? And so they would compel the local people into service for them. And I think one of the examples of that that we see in the scriptures is when Jesus was carrying his cross, that the Romans, the centurions and the, the soldiers there, they compelled that man, Simon of Cyrene, to help Jesus carry his cross. Now, did Simon take it an extra mile? Well, it's, it seems to me that he helped him get the cross to where it needed to be. But I think Jesus used that in his life. I mean, he carried the cross, but he carried the cross of the Messiah. And, you know, if he didn't carry the cross, what would have happened? I mean, later it seems to us that we read about him in Acts, like that he's with the disciples later on in Acts. In chapter, I think it's 13, that they're there praying, and it mentions this man, Simon of Cyrene. is possibly the same man. Um, that's often how they would refer to people, right, with, with the place that they were from. And it was such a faraway place that it was unlikely to be anyone else. So, you know, God reached into this man's life, even though the Romans compelled him in the service. And I think for a Christian, right, a Roman compels you into service. And it interrupts your plans, right? And you had this certain purpose that you had to carry out, and suddenly a Roman asked you to help him with something, a Roman soldier, and you're compelled into service. What do you do then? Well, what he's basically saying is you're looking for the opportunity to go further. You're looking to serve others rather than just do what's carried out with complaining and with an attitude, but rather look to how I can reach this person's heart. I think when you look at Jesus and how he went with people when they asked him, how he visited them when they asked him into his homes. Now, Jesus obviously has an advantage. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. But he, you know, for us, we, we need to take the opportunities, right? We need to jump on the opportunities to serve others um, and to go the extra mile. You know, we can... If we, it's like sometimes, you know, between Lisa and I, 
like Lisa Lack asked me to do something, and if I do it with a complaining heart, right, it's not, <laughs> it has uh, the opposite effect in terms of blessing her, even though it's an opportunity for me to bless, right, um, to do it with the right heart. And now, like I said, it's difficult to live up to these things, and that's why we need God's Holy Spirit and God's light to shine to reveal to us how much we need him. Um, but I think with, with strangers and with people who, you know, ask us for much beyond what we really feel comfortable with and stuff, those are chances, I think. And if we're in the spirit and we're looking for opportunities, God will use it, especially as we do it in faith and, and in prayer and thinking about how God would, would uh, use us in that way. And then give to him, verse 42, that asks of you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And I think this is, you know, giving is the very nature of God, right? That not only did he give his only begotten son, right? But he's given so much, right? He's, he's given us his love, his, you know, his attention, his you know, his goodness in so many ways, even though we don't deserve it, right? I think it's important for us to remember that none of what we have that's good is deserved, right? It's actually the opposite. We deserve zero. We deserve nothing. And yet he gives it to us. Um, and, you know, I think it's also important to note that we're not to necessarily give without wisdom, right? We don't give with, like, will, like, just, you want to give things that help people or that are an opportunity to minister to them. You can actually hurt people in giving to them in a, an unwise way, right? And I think many of you know what I'm talking about. Just if you give to someone who uses that as an opportunity to, to, to worse their state, right? They may be, maybe they, it's money and they go and use it for alcohol, right? So you have to be wise in how you give. I think it goes just like a father, you don't, and I was telling this, um, I was talking to someone on Sunday morning, and we were talking about, you know, how God wants us to give good gifts, and, and I mentioned, you know, God, you know, when I give something to my son, I don't want it to hurt him. I want it to bless him, right? And so anytime my son asks, it's not that I don't want to give it. It's just, if I keep doing that, if I keep doing it whenever he asks, it can create the wrong effect, right? And I think as a father or as a mother, we have, a, a, it's, it's, we're more keenly aware of it because we spend so much time with our kids and we see how they're growing and struggling and changing. Um, and I think, you know, so we gotta be able to give with wisdom and give with, uh, with guidance. And I think it's just look for the opportunity to give and don't be attached to what you have. Like the stuff you have, you are a steward of that. And as in being a steward, that means you have to give an account for all that you have. And some of what you have is time. Some of what you have is money, resources. All of those things are possibilities for giving, right? You know, some of the hardest times to give are, is your time, right? Where, especially as you get busier, um, People are demanding of your time, and 
your frustration is, I can't do that other thing that I had planned and thought through of how I'm gonna accomplish it today, and now I'm, my time is interrupted. But giving to those that ask and letting those who bar, you know, borrow don't turn away. Um, some people have genuine needs, and I think as believers, it's an opportunity to minister to them. So he goes on here, and he goes instead, you know, the first part there was going the extra mile and not, not going, you know, not having that tit-for-tat mentality. And now here he takes it further. He takes it a step further. And it's just a more general commandment that you're to love your enemies, right? So he says that. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I think um, as, it, you know, as it pertains to this particular passage here, he says, love your neighbor. It was being taught because they knew this scripture, love your neighbor. And so they then inferred from that that, okay, if you love your neighbor, you're supposed to, to hate your enemy, right? And for the Jew, the enemy was essentially anyone who conquered them, the Romans, or any Gentile for that matter. So they took it a step further, and it was just more or less hate the Gentiles, right, in this time. Um, and that, that was the pervading teaching of the, you know, those like the Pharisees, right? And Jesus says, love your enemies, Bless those who curse you. And I think this starts, again, like verse 45 is really the explanation here of, of how we can start to do that. Like that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil, on the good, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And I had mentioned that earlier. So God sees people in an equal way. He sees them as fallen creatures, that they're all, they've all fallen short. And he's, in his ways, in his plan, he's given man this shortened time frame. Like, we don't live as long as man originally did. Actually, man was always intended to live forever. But it was when sinner entered that death followed therein. And so God has given a time frame, but in that time frame, he is merciful to the wicked. It doesn't mean he allows that to go on forever. No, I believe that both nations, groups, individuals, all of those folks have a time frame whereby they can operate, right, in their wickedness. That's why when the wickedness starts, he doesn't just cut it off. Now, a lot of people have problems with this. A lot of people blame God that then you're then at fault for all the wickedness. God has allowed Satan to reign in this world for a time. And why did he do that? Well, I think in part, he wants people to be able to choose him. Without choice, there's no love. And in allowing there to be choice, he also 
give provision to express his love for us in the cross and that we then have a way back. And to see just how great his goodness is through the cross, through the resurrection, that it, you know, he was willing to suffer in all of these ways, in the way that the wicked were to be judged. Remember, when he was on the cross, he was being judged as an unrighteous, wicked man, even though we know he wasn't. So he took all of it on himself so that there was a way. But God is also no respecter of persons, right? God doesn't look at one person and think, oh, you know, I'm not going to give them the sun today. I'm going to give them a real dark and gloomy day, right? <laughs> no, he allows the sun to shine on all of us and all of the blessings that we can partake in. Um, you know, the principles of, of, of sowing and reaping, yes, there's a spiritual principle that, but there's also the natural principle that if you sow seeds, they will produce fruit. And he doesn't take that away from the wicked. He gives that to them as well. And that's a sign of his kindness. That's what he's saying here. It's a sign of my kindness and long-suffering towards those people. And in the same way, you who realize, you like you and I, we realize just the nature of these things and the things I just explained. When we look at the wicked, we're to realize that a, it's temporary, that whatever reason that they're on our, our enemy, there may be multiple reasons that they're on our enemy. Maybe their beliefs don't align with ours. Maybe their politics don't align with ours. Maybe they've done something purposefully to wrong us. Um, but we're to look in the internal uh, viewpoint. And that's what's going to allow us to do good to those who hate us and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us, you know. So, you know, the, those that hate us, they literally hate Jesus and what he stands for in the sense of, like, that all of this stuff is going to end. Like, people don't want this world to end. They want to continue on. And they hate that this is going to end. They hate that there's a judgment. They hate that, there's, uh, that sin will have to be judged at some point. They want to continue on in it. And I think such as were some of us, Paul said that. We were that way. But we are washed and we are cleansed. And so um, they, the hate of Jesus may be pointed and directed at us. And those that spitefully use us, the way of the world is to better oneself for one's own gain because we know this life is temporary. And so as believers, we may be spitefully used. Um, and then those that persecute us. And I think with prayer, right, when you pray for someone who's your enemy, it does change your attitude towards them. It changes the way that you think about them. You don't want them harm. You want good. Right? By praying, what you're basically doing is, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so, you know, this is how I feel about this person. But because I'm praying, I'm saying, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. I think we see that in the Psalms. And it was a struggle in the Psalms for David. It's like, Lord, you know, bash their teeth, right? Um, but that was his inner turmoil as well. It wasn't just that he wanted to bash their teeth. He wanted the Lord to be 
his defender, right? He didn't have to defend himself with Saul, and he felt guilty for even chopping off a little bit of his hair, right, or, or his clothes, it was. His robe, yeah. So, you know, he let the Lord be his defender, though, when it came to Saul. Saul was trying to kill him, right? And he respected him as the Lord's anointed, and he showed him that respect and was even willing to serve again under him, even after the fact that Saul had tried to kill him. So, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And so this is basically saying, like, you know, everyone hated the tax collectors. Everyone thought, like, very lowly of them. I think it's, I, I don't know if you've seen The Chosen, but they really don't like this guy, Matthew. And um, I like that part of, of it, how he's so ostracized because of who he is, but Jesus accepts him so readily. Um, but the, the, you know, the, you see this transformation in Matthew, too. Um, and, you know, there's some artistic license there are with the chosen, but they, they really do represent the character and person of these, these guys in a way that, that seems to be in line with scripture, right? Which is what I like about it. Um, but for, you know, what he's saying is these hated people, even they take care of their family. Even they have a natural affection for their family. Um, and do good for them. So if you do the same thing, how much better are you, right, than them? It's basically putting you on an equal playing field to the one you hate, right? Um, and so, you know, if you, if you only show goodness towards those you love who we're, uh, we're supposed to, and it's, it's, in a way, it's easy. Like, I haven't... I mean, in some ways, it's hard to raise your own kids, but like showing them kindness, for the most part, it's like, it's easy. I want to, right? You know, I want to serve them. I want to help them. I want to lay down my own desires to, to help them. It's a natural thing. But where it's not natural is when I've been wronged by someone, when, when someone comes against me. And I think there's so many areas where this happens, whether it's at the job, whether it's in our relationship. And remember, loving one's enemies doesn't mean necessarily you have to be their best friend or you have to do anything. Like sometimes friendships and trust can be damaged to a point where it doesn't, it, do, it will never be the same as it once was. But your heart towards that person and the kindness that you show doesn't have to be like it's it's not to be like the world you can still be kind and love that person and and hope for the best for them in terms of eternity right and i think that's what jesus is saying here is you know with that eternal perspective the way that god treats people that's the way that we're supposed to look at others and then he says it you know the, and this really ties into the whole um sermon on the mount Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I think that's almost like a summary because he had challenged them about, you know, not only uh, these things with one's enemies 
and you know, going the second mile, but murder in your heart and lust in your heart, all those things. And now he's saying, you know, be perfect, even as I am perfect, or your Father in heaven is perfect. And so um, turn with me to, and I, this is the example I want to give of how, how, you know, our attitude towards people can change, I think, as God works. So if you go over to um, Matthew chapter 26. In verse 47, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he sees that Judas is coming along. He had been praying praying there with his disciples. His disciples fell asleep, and then Judas had in his heart gone to betray him. So he says, or it says, while he was still speaking in verse 47, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And that inconsistency that we see there. Like on one hand, behind the scenes, he plots the betrayal of Jesus and with the religious leaders and willing to give, a, give up all that he had as one of Jesus' apostles. Like it's kind of this, and yet then he goes up to him and calls him master, right? And I think that inconsistency is one of the things that you will run into in dealing with whether it's persecution or whether it's, you know, an unfair treatment by others or just the hatred that might occur for being a believer or in any case, any conflict, right? Um, because of what you stand for or whatever, um, there's, you'll see this inconsistency. And I think it's important for us as believers to walk in a way that's consistent, right? And I think, again, this is where we need that searchlight. Like Paul always tried to live in a way that his conscience was right, conscience conscience was right towards those around him, right? Whereas here we know, you know, Judas is coming up and then he felt horrible after to the point of committing suicide. So in one moment, he, he's angry. He betrays Jesus. I think it was tied into his expectations of Jesus that he hoped that Jesus would be revealed as the Messiah and somehow he would be in a prominent place and it didn't happen the way that he had hoped. And often he was corrected or often, you know, and so he, he didn't like that. And, and so he gave up, you know, it's like he gave up that path and said, okay, I'm going to go this way. And so he betrayed Jesus for a small amount of money. Um, and then Jesus says, friend, in verse 50, why have you come? And remember, he gave him the, the honored seat at the uh, Passover, in the Last Supper. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus, and this is, what the, this is the example I wanted to give more, more specifically, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we know that was Peter. 
But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be thus? In other words, he must be betrayed and he must be crucified. It had to happen. And so yet Peter was, you know, the adrenaline's pumping, right? It's, this is battle time. This is what I've been waiting for. This is, you know, this is when we can, you know, show our, our fight, right? And, uh, you know, he goes for the kill and gets an ear. <laughs> Uh, we, we don't know exactly what he tried to do, but it, he did cut off his ear. Jesus, in another one of the Gospels, Jesus actually heals the man um, and kind of undoes the evil that Peter caused. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting that he says that he who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. And this makes me think about a lot of things. This makes me think about our, you know, what is, what is our place in the world that we live in terms of fighting, Right. Well, I think there's obviously there's we got to compare scripture with scripture. So, you know, there's what if you're a soldier, should you take your sword? Well, Jesus said, you know, even to the disciples that if you have a sword, you know, just take one sword, one and a, and a sort of a self-defense. You know, he didn't call the soldiers to leave their role ever. He, you know, they were to continue in that that occup uh, oc occupation that they had. Um, so it's not really a thing of, you know, this isn't really about, like, um, just being a peaceful objector of everything. Though if someone has that conviction for some reason, fine, right? But that's not universally true. Like, there is a need for soldiers. And, and ideally, there wouldn't be any war, but in cases there are. Um, but what he's saying is that this isn't the way of my kingdom. My kingdom isn't a fight on this earth, right? My king, if I wanted to, I could just end this right now. If my kingdom was of this earth, you know, I'd call down a legion of angels and it, we'd be done. We'd clean house here. No. He's basically saying, you know, when people go to war in this world, like if you're trying to set up your government in this world, there's going to be someone else to fight you in this world. But this isn't the way that Jesus' kingdom was. His kingdom was an unseen kingdom. It was a kingdom that would be set up in people's hearts. And so Peter was learning a valuable lesson here. Um, and I think for us, I think we need to pick our battles. I think in times we pick a political battle or some sort of social issue battle. And it doesn't mean that we don't have views or convictions about those things. But where do we go? Where are we going to fight? Where are we going to invest our energy? What is our, where is our heart? We need to look in the unseen. And we need to choose the battles, not by, you know, the talking heads of the day, whether they're on this side of the political spectrum or that side or, you know, or they closely match ours. We're to align ourselves first. And, it's, and I'm not saying we can't have political views because we do have a certain rights as citizens, but it's almost like dual citizenship, right? You have dual citizenship in a way. So being a citizen in this country gives you certain privileges and rights. It gives you the privilege to vote. It gives you the privilege to take part 
in a civic society. You could run for office if you meet the qualifications. Um, you know, you could pursue a career in politics and you could, you could fight that battle or you could, you know, demonstrate for your views. And in some cases, demonstrations can make an impact. But you're a dual citizen. And so those rights as a citizen in this country, if you then mix in your other dual citizenship, you have to realize that it may cloud your opportunity to meet those people on the other side, the enemies on the political spectrum. If you, if you choose to fight that battle, right, and there's some battles that are worth fighting, there's some battles that are worth standing up for, and we need wisdom to be able to pick those, I think, um, that w they really matter. I remember talking to someone at work, and he was a believer, and somehow we got into talking to the environment, and we were in agreement. It's like, you know, the environment, though, you know, I may disagree with one thing or another thing, but it's not a battle I want to die for, right? I don't really, when it comes down to it, I know the end based on the scriptures. If people want to take care of this planet, I'm all for that, right? I don't have anything against that. But, you know, long term, I know the planet's not going to be the way it is today, right? So it's not a battle that I'm necessarily going to, you know, risk my citizenship of heaven in terms of that being represented to other people. And I think that plays into this here that if you take that sword, Peter, and you fight that battle, you basically are losing the privilege of what will come later. And we're going to see it. So if you turn over to Acts, because um, now we see the contrast of what happened. And again, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that after Acts chapter 2, God poured out his Holy Spirit. Um, we see over in Acts, let's see, chapter uh, 5, and Peter in verse 30, he said, the God of our, he's preaching again. Remember, he had preached uh, after he had, so he had preached at Pentecost, 3,000 people plus families got saved. He preached then again after him and John had raised up that man that was lame in the temple area, Solomon's porch there. And then they came against him and basically said, don't speak about Jesus, and they kind of reprimanded him. They didn't know what to do because they feared all the people. And so they said, don't do this. And, they, and John and Peter, they said, you know, well, who are we going to obey? God or you, right? And we're going to obey God, right? So... So they get out there and they end up um, preaching again. And they're on trial again. And so Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God had given to those who obey him. And when they heard these things, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Now, imagine if Peter took out his sword after preaching that great message and went and sliced someone's ear off. 
it'd be, uh, you know, the message would be a little different, right? It's kind of like, we're the Crusaders now, suddenly. It just changed. And, you know, the Crusaders, from a historical perspective, are looked at in a negative light because they did exactly this. They fought in the name of Christ to conquer lands. It's all temporary, guys. You're wasting your time, right? You, you're not, you don't make converts by forcing Christianity on people. Uh, now, does it mean that every crusader was evil? Probably not. Some of them were doing their duty. But the initiative that they took and the assumptions that they had, that's looked at as a negative thing. And that doesn't mean that on the other side, too, in whatever, you know, there were the Jews that were involved in the crusade and there were the, the Muslims as well. It doesn't mean there wasn't evil on those sides either. That's often how war is. Um, but I think, you know, it just goes back to if Peter took on his role, I mean, he didn't really have that right as a citizen, but what if he tried to cause a revolution here, right? It just, the message goes away. It's a different message. It's we're taking back our land. It's, it's Peter's a zealot now, right? He's one of these zealot guys, right, that are, you know, fighting for the independence of the Jewish state, right? If he goes and tries to cut off an ear at this point. No, he doesn't. But rather, they take him, and what did they do? They beat him. So it says, verse 40, and they agreed with him, and that is Gamaliel, because Gamaliel basically stopped them from killing him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so because of their citizenship in, in heaven, they were able to, to experience the suffering of Christ in a certain way. Um, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And that is, that's a refrain in Acts for the church, church basically was growing and multiplying. And a lot of it, a lot of that... Um, the growth occurs in the Christian life and, and spreading the gospel when there's real suffering and there's bloodshed, right, On, in terms of the suffering of his servants for his namesake. God works because it's that resurrection principle. Like when there's death in me, there's life in others. And, you know, I've, obviously Christ is the ultimate example of that in his death, suffering, the death of a, a criminal, he was able to give us life, right? And I think there is an incredible fellowship that happens in that place, I think, that we grow close to him, that we, that we experience him in a different way when we go through being wronged the way that we shouldn't. And I think that being wronged, it happens on a lot of fronts. It's not just because being mocked. I mean, one thing I've been dealing with a little bit is being mocked, right? Um, but it's also, you know, People react against Christ in us um, because it's, it, you know, the, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit has come to bring conviction of sin, right? The sin in our own hearts for everyone. His job, it's not our job to convict people. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin and to show of Christ's righteousness. And that's what it is. It's the righteousness of Christ. And then also the judgment to come, that this is going to cease. And so the Holy Spirit bearing witness of our lives um, people see that, and it creates 
attention there. And, you know, they want to they wanna lash out and they don't know how to react at it because it's totally adverse to what the rest of the world is like. And to be honest, it's rare. Um, you know, and I think as believers, you know, we have such a great opportunity in these days that we live to be wise in the way we speak. I was watching an NBA, uh, an NBA guy today. My brother told me about him. He, he plays for the Orlando Magic. And he was speaking about why he wasn't getting the vaccine. And, but, you know, he, he wasn't trying to fight about it, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of these restrictions coming down. And he's just saying, you know, this is my choice for, for my body, you know. And, and he wasn't trying to cause a stir. And then at the end, though, they asked him a question about his faith. And he just he jumped on it because he, he was a believer. And he's just, he was just so well thought through. I was really impressed by this guy. Um, and, you know, he, he jumped on that opportunity to talk about the Lord, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, it basically he was saying that's not really playing into my decision, but God calls us to be wise. God calls us to, to be faithful in, in what we do. And, and, you know, and he just walked through it and was really, uh, vocal about his faith, you know, and I think they knew it when the media was interviewing him and stuff. So. Praise the Lord for those things. But I think, you know, for us as believers, it's an opportunity, really. And, you know, Jesus, when he was accused, when, if you remember, there were points where he was totally silent. Like, he didn't say anything to, like, Herod. And then there were points where he spoke the truth when it needed to be, like Her with, um, with Pilate, right? And Pilate started questioning what is truth. And Jesus basically said, you know, I'm the Messiah to Pilate. And, and, and really clearly spelled out that. And, you know, I think when, when there's no real hope to getting through people, it, in a way it's just silent. Just be silent, right? You don't have to defend yourself. You, you let God be your defender. And I think um, when there's an opportunity to make an impact on people, that's the times that Jesus spoke. When Jesus saw that rich young ruler, he challenged him, right? He challenged him with, you know, sell all of it, come follow me. And he didn't like that, and he left. There were so many opportunities where, you know, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He spoke the truth, and he spoke it in love when that opportunity was there and he knew he could make an impact. In some cases, the people departed from him. If you remember, like when he said, drink my, drink my blood and eat my body, all these got people, all the crowds left them because they didn't get it, right? And they just got frustrated with that. Other times when Jesus spoke to them, it's like it changed their lives. Like the woman at the well I mentioned, it's like she went and told all the Samaritans about this prophet who had told her all of all she had done and all who she was. And she's like, she, he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so, you know, I think this is just an encouragement, an exhortation tonight uh, with these verses, and let's end in prayer here. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for these examples you give us in the scriptures that we could understand um, how to live a way that pleases you and to be perfect as you are perfect. And we pray as we live in these lives, Lord, and, and walk in these um, places in Rochester and Webster and the surrounding communities. Help us to, to walk in a way that's worthy of your calling, that's wise, to be gentle as um, doves and wise as serpents, as the scriptures say in Mark there. And uh, Lord, to, uh, 
Lord, to just be, to have a real heart for people that hate us, that are against us, that mock us. Lord, we, we know that you have been good to so many. Um, Lord, you reached out to Judas even in his betrayal. And uh, Lord, we know you care even for the wicked, Lord. We think of people like um, John Newton, Lord, a slave traitor. You saved him, a wretch. And such were some of us in the sense of we were wretches, Lord, and you saved us. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for, for working in our hearts and help us to be gracious with the ungracious. Help us to be kind to the unkind. Help us to be loving to our enemies. And we thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.